from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Our show is all about building bridges between different fields of research, and to that end, we've got some big bridges to build today. First, we're going to be joined by one of the world's foremost experts on transportation infrastructure. Next, we're going to talk to someone who's making invasive insect identification easier for everyone, the transportation economist and the insect ecologist. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today, we're talking about the way people and insects move from place to place. Humans, of course, use cars and trucks, and that causes all sorts of problems, like traffic and pollution. Insects, as it turns out, also use cars and trucks, and also trains and planes and boats, and that makes keeping non-native species at bay really hard, which causes all sorts of problems. On the line with us from upstate New York is Rick Geddes, the director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy and the co-author of a recent paper in Nature about a novel way to reduce traffic congestion. He's also testified before congressional committees at least 10 times. Rick Geddes, I sure hope we're more fun to talk to than Congress. (laughs) Thanks, Matthew. It's great to be on Undisciplined. And with us today in studio is Lori Spears, an insect ecologist who studies invasive species and who is part of a team that recently completed work on Exotic BID, an online identification guide to help protect native bees in the United States. She was also part of a two-woman team that discovered a new species of spider back when she was still a student. Lori, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks, Matthew. First up today, the transportation economist. That is the Traffic Song by Brant Hansen, and I wish I could say I've ever sounded that happy when I'm stuck in a jam, but there's nothing I hate worse. And that's why I really, really want today's first guest to be right. He's part of an international team of researchers who believe they've got the solution to highway congestion. Rick Geddes, before we get to that, take me back a bit. You're a young economist, you're out to make your mark on the world, and you see a future in transportation infrastructure. How does that happen? I was a senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House some time ago, and I was eager to learn about new policy issues. And at the CEA, you're exposed to a ton of new policy issues all the time. And Congress was, in fact, uh, working through what was called the Safety Lou, which was a massive highway reauthorization act that passed in 2005. And they asked for the input of the Council of Economic Advisors, and I was the the only person that really had background in regulation or utility economics or transportation economics. And I was exposed, Matthew, at that time to a whole bunch of uh, new policy issues, new to me at least, in infrastructure, and that included public-private partnerships, road tolling, it included environmental permitting challenges, stakeholder engagement, a whole bunch of issues that we now recognize as being very, very important. And as a result of that, I was appointed by President George W. Bush to serve on a commission that was actually created in that 2005 Safety Lou Highway Bill. And the name of this commission only Congress could create. It's called the National Surface Transportation Policy and Revenue Study Commission. That's horrible. as, As a result of that, I learned a lot more. 
but and and you find out that transportation is what makes the world go round, and you start geeking out on this stuff, right? I really do believe it makes the world go round. And keep in mind that a lot of people think transportation, and they think the road that they ride to work on, or perhaps a bridge or a tunnel. But it's actually a lot more than that. It's it's the seaports, it's airports, it's inland waterways, it's what we call intermodal connectors. There's just enormous pieces of infrastructure in any developed, in many developing countries that have to take place in order for the transportation system to work. Have, they have to be effective. I want to know how this project began. How did you and your fellow researchers set out to solve traffic? Or maybe this came about in a roundabout way. A number of years ago, you know, chatted with, uh, with Peter Crampton, who was a very well-known economist in the field of auctions and market design, particularly in, in the electricity space, but also in creating markets in novel things like the use of the radio spectrum that we're using right now. And we got talking about transportation infrastructure problems. And, of course, one of the first things that comes to mind for a lot of people is uh, traffic congestion. And so, you know, Peter and I started discussing how uh, the, the increased use of markets, which we, we use a lot in the wholesale electricity market, for example, could not only alleviate or reduce, but actually eliminate traffic congestion. The problem to, in Economics 101, it's all laid out, the problem to any economist is that the use of the road space at any particular point in time is mispriced. And therefore, you get uh, you know, people overusing uh, any good, really, that, that's priced too low. And just like you think, Matthew, of water you know, running through a, a funnel, you know, you're adjusting the faucet to get the water running through the funnel just right so that you, you maximize the flow of the water through the funnel, if you adjust the price just like you would adjust the faucet handle, you can get traffic flowing through the system at what we call free flow. And so what- that's really the thrust of this. And so what you proposed is this solution called dynamic road pricing. Can you talk about how that works? Dynamic road pricing, Matthew, is actually not that uncommon in many parts of the world. There's different sections of road that are real-time priced, what are called hot lanes, high occupancy or toll lanes, where the price of the use of the road changes in real time, right, based on how many vehicles are using the road at that time. So the higher the demand the higher the price. And the price is effectively adjusted on those hot lanes to keep traffic at free flow. So Peter and another co-author in Germany, Axel Okenfels and I, have worked out what it would look like if you took that concept to its logical conclusion. So if we real-time priced the entire road network the way we do for electricity, what would that market structure look like? And that's really what the Nature Paper is all about. And technologically, this couldn't have happened 10 or 20 years ago, right? What makes this a viable thing that could happen now in terms of the way that we can track cars? The father of this concept was a Nobel Prize winner in economics named William Vickery, who was at Columbia University and predicted this decades ago in in the late 50s and into the 60s. And of course, he couldn't figure out exactly how the technology might work. So he thought there would be something under your car that would meter your road use. Of course, now we all know it's above your car in the form of satellites connected to your smartphone. And the technology exists, Matthew, now to know a vehicle's location down to the sub-meter level including not only in the XY space, but in the Z space, so the vertical space. 
So, you know, we know if you're on the upper or the lower deck of the George Washington Bridge, for example, and we can charge for your use of the road. So, so let's be clear, there is no, there are no remaining technological barriers to the implementation of a system like Peter and Axel ha- and I have in mind. So the barriers that remain then would be social and they would be governmental. Uh, One of the comparisons that you've offered here is making roads operate more like an electricity market, making road space a commodity. Now, when I hear that, I think, oh, goodness, this could go terribly wrong. And I immediately think about access and equity. Can you assuage those concerns for me? Sure, sure. So let's take the first one. So uh, this is like, think of it like any utility, Matthew. Uh, Matthew. So we, we have a deep concerns about people's access, say, to electricity or to natural gas uh, for heat or, you know, to, to uh, communications or clean water or any of other number of, you know, sort of essential services that we view as utilities. So the provider is never able to withhold capacity or access to, you know, to a user. So that in utility language, they're common carriers. They have to meet all, you know, people who, who come along. So there's a, you know, 80, 90-year history in utility economics about ensuring open access to these sorts of critical services. And I think We'd all agree that access to the road network it counts as one of the, those critical services. Now, your second part, Matthew, is actually really a good question, which is, is about equity. And that is, you know, we're pricing the road, and isn't, you know, isn't that a problem? Um, yes, I mean, it's, it's certainly a concern. Uh, but there's been a ton of research done on this, and, you know, there's, there's a number of ways to think about that. First of all, I should say, Matthew, that the state of Oregon has been a, a true leader in moving from paying for the roads with a gas tax to paying for the roads with a per-mile, you know, fee or price, which is what we're talking about, but we're just making it dynamic. So the state of Oregon has already, for the past 10 years, gone through a whole bunch of these studies. They find that it actually is not as uh, regressive in the sense of hurting poor people as you might think. Uh, You know, mostly wealthier people drive on roads. Think of the D.C. Beltway uh, during peak load, you know, peak period times. So they would be paying the higher prices. Also, it's, it's, it's definitely not the case that traffic congestion helps poor people, right? Traffic congestion disproportionately hurts the poor. So we would be alleviating that. Plus, there's other ways, you know, just like we do for water or electricity, where we sort of have a carve out on your bill for people who are poor. So we make sure that they, they have credits and other things so that they're not denied this service. Now, you mentioned Oregon. I understand that Singapore is also moving ahead with this. If this works where it's being tried, based on your experience, do you think it'll be quickly adopted? We've talked to the folks in Singapore about our proposal, and Singapore, as people you know, may or may not know, is, is almost a fully priced uh, road network. Uh, and again, the, the key thing here is we're making it dynamic in real time. But we should add that London has what's called cordon pricing uh, system, which is like a ring around downtown London. So does Stockholm, Malmo in, in Sweden as well. So there's other countries around the world that are doing this. New York City under Mayor Bloomberg carefully considered this. And I think you're right, Matthew. I think what happens is once a jurisdiction does this, the benefits become tangible, then others will start to adopt it. So I'm sort of predicting once this concept is understood fully that you'll see pretty rapid adoption. 
That's Rick Geddes, whose recent commentary in the journal Nature suggests that we could be on the way to a traffic-free future if we treat road space as a commodity. Rick, can you stick around to talk to our next guest? Uh, Certainly. Thanks, Matthew. Next up, the insect ecologist. We've used that soundbite before, and if you recognize it, you know that it means we're about to talk about one of our favorite insects, the prolific pollinators of the Anthophila clade, the bees. There are about 4,000 native species of bees on North America, but there are tens of thousands all over the world. And our next guest has been working hard to help people who aren't entomologists know which bees are locals and which bees aren't. Lori Spears, we know that non-native species are a concern in every place on the planet. What makes bees a particular concern? Um, so, so some bees are very good at uh, being transported to new areas. A lot of the different in, in exotic bees belong to family Megachylidae, and they tend to nest in um, wood and pre-existing cavities um, and stems and twigs and other items that can easily be moved over to uh, the U.S. So, so they're good hiders, they're good burrowers, and that makes them good stowaways, right? They're, yeah, they're, they're, some of them are, are really good stowaways. Gotcha. And then once they get here, they compete with the native bees? They can compete with the native bees for either floral resources or nesting mm-hmm. sites. Um, some other potential negative impacts of exotic bees include transmission of diseases, parasites and pathogens. Um, some have been reported to damage buildings. Um, they can reduce pollination of uh, native plant species. And conversely, they can increase the pollination of invasive weed species. And so those are just some of the negative impacts of exotic bees. So we've got an ecological and also kind of a monetary interest in keeping these bees at bay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So... Tell me how exotic bee ID got started. So the ITP program with USDA, ITP stands for Identification Technology Program. They uh, released several different diagnostic tools to help support the identification of exotic bees, or sorry, exotic species. And so a group of us came together and wrote a, a and we wrote a proposal to USDA, and it was funded. And so it's a three-year project. And when you when you have an idea and then you write a grant and it gets funded in this day and age, that's an exciting day, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you pop the champagne cork? Uh, yes, <laughs> probably several. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I've been playing with this tool online, and I'm pretty sure I don't have it totally figured out. But I just spent like an hour with the gallery alone last night. It's just it's so cool. The diversity of bees is spectacular. Yes, there's twenty to 30,000 bee species worldwide. And you've got a whole lot. I mean, you don't have all of them on this tool, but you've got the ones that are most likely to be in, either be here already or be likely to be transported here. Is that correct? Yes. Right now, the focus is on the family Megachylidae and the genus Apis. And then the future editions will expand on those groups. Um, and the reason why we focus on those groups is, as you just mentioned, they're, they're good stowaways. Those groups represent um, most of the exotic bees that are in the U.S. 
Okay. And how does somebody use this tool? Like, how? Because you're trying to design this so that anybody can use it. And in particular, it's people who might have, they might be inspectors and ports of entry, that sort of thing, right? Yes. So how do they go about using the tool that you've created? Well, the tool is free and available online. So they would compare their specimen or a nest that they might find to um, the tools or the resources on this tool. So we have interactive Lucid keys, which enables the user to um, more easily, they're very user-friendly keys. And so it enables the user to select, um, for example, the color of the bee or the size of the bee, and then it'll um, narrow down the entries or the bees that pertain to those choices that the user entered. They can look at fact sheets, and those fact sheets on the different bees include diagnostic characters, nesting behaviors, distribution, where the bees are, are currently known to be at, and host associations. And then there's, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of images associated with this tool, and so they can go and compare their bee to the bees that we have photographed. Okay, so I'm looking, let's say, like at a box of mangoes, and I notice there's this little critter on there. And so I can use your tool. I say, okay, well, this little bee is this color, and its wing shape is this, and its thorax is maybe this long. And then I can use that along with an understanding of where my mangoes came from to know better whether or not that bee is supposed to be here already or it came along with those mangoes. Yes. Yep. And there are more iterations of exotic BID coming in the years to come? Yes. Yeah, so as I mentioned, we are right now focusing on uh, family Megachylidae and the genus Apis. And our next editions will include more information on exotic and select native species or genera. So right now we are working on the uh, genera Osmia and Megachylae. And Megachylae is the genus that is represented the most by exotic species in the U.S. And then we'll also be working on Anthidium and Pseudoanthidium. And then in family Apidae, we will also be expanding um, information on the genera Ceratina and Xylocopa. These names roll off your tongue like nothing at all. Did it take a while? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Lori Spears, who's part of the team that built non-native bee species identification tool, which you can look at and even use by searching for exotic bee ID. Lori, can you stay a little longer and talk to our first guest? Yes. Thanks, Matthew. Then, Lori, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to transportation economist Rick Geddes. And Rick, this is invasive insect ecologist Lori Spears. Hi, Laurie. Great to talk to you. Hi, Rick. Great to talk to you, too. Rick, maybe we can start with you. You were listening in while I was talking to Lori. What did I miss? What do you want to know about identifying non-native species? There's a lot that I would uh, want to know from Laurie. As she was speaking, I was thinking that some of the issues that you raised regarding road pricing are actually relevant because it sounds like from uh, some of the issues that Laurie's grappling with, with with these non-native invasive bee species require different jurisdictions of government, whether it's state, local, or federal, to cooperate with each other. And in the United States, as you may know, that's, that's always a challenge. And I'd be curious as to how Laurie deals with that, if that has been an issue? Um, yeah, so we work with um, several different partners, including um, so state partners and uh, federal partners, not just with exotic bees, but with other exotic species, whether they're found in the U.S. or, um, or in Utah or, or across the U.S. Um, and so there's a whole team of, of people working on invasive species. 
Richard, you mentioned this idea of kind of an, an economic solution. As Laurie was talking, did you think, hey, maybe we could, I mean, is there dynamic pricing for bees? Could we do that for like people who are bringing things in with invasive species to make them more attentive to what they're bringing in if the taxes were higher or the prices were higher for loads of mangoes that had an invasive species in them? Yeah, I'm not sure, Matthew, about um, how this, you know, how exactly it would, it would work in a thinking about it in a pricing context. But if we did think about this again in an, an Econ 101 type of a context, what Laurie's talking about sort of is, is a much more general economic problem that we call a negative externality. It's kind of like you can think about the invasive species coming in and doing negative things as like air pollution, right, causing sort of a, a third-party harm. And it's interesting to, to look at uh, the, the different ways that we attempt to solve a negative externality problem. One of them is some sort of a tax scheme, Matthew, but there's a lot of other cooperative arrangements that emerge amongst the, the, the person who is, or the group that is in some sense facilitating or causing the harm with those who are actually harmed by it. So I'd be curious as to, you know, if Laurie knows of any sort of cooperative agreements, whether it's landowners, beekeepers, I'm not sure, you know, where people cooperate to try to to address this issue. I think most states have cooperative agreements set up to help address uh, invasive species. And there's a range of economic solutions to that, right? One would be to tax those who are causing the uh, invasion from the non-native bees, right? It could be regulation, where we come in with some sort of a government regulation that tries to address the problem. But there's another way where we see people, you know, cooperating, making sort of arrangements amongst themselves, those people harmed and those people causing the harm, in order to address the problem. And I'm just curious as to, you know, what solutions have you seen the most? Is it regulation, taxation, you know, cooperative agreements? I think it's mostly regulation. A lot of invasive species are are regulated um, by the federal government. So there's a big push towards uh, towards regulation. Lori, let me ask you this. If you identify an invasive species, let's say Canada sends us some apples, and we identify an invasive species in those apples, is there some kind of mechanism by which we say, hey, Canada, stop doing that, and this is what we're going to do to make sure that you stop doing that? Or is it simply now we have this and we have to respond to it? It depends on the invasive species that was identified. If, if it is a regulated pest, a quarantine is set up, and um, the, the U.S. would halt the, um, those apples from coming into the U.S., yeah. Okay. So there's a, and that, that in and of itself, right, would be an economic, uh, what do we call it, Rick, a, a destimulase, a, a, an economic negative. You mean the negative externality? The, well, the, the consequence for sending the, the apples from Canada into the United States by stopping shipment because there's an invasive species in there, that in and of itself would be a punishment uh, sure. for the sender, right? Yes, and that would fall probably, you know, under a set of solutions that we would call, you know, regulatory solutions, right? And, you know, you're using, you're using uh, administrative power of the state to somehow stop the harm from taking place. So it's not, it's not like a tax, which is a standard way of trying to solve a negative externality. It's not a cooperative agreement, really. It would be more of a regulation in an administrative state sense. Gotcha. Let me change the subject a little bit here. One of the things I observed when I was talking to both of you it was this passion for 
problem solving. Where did that come from in your lives, Lori? I worked with spiders originally as a graduate student, and I became interested in applied entomology during my time as a, as a graduate student. And so um, this position allowed me to apply my knowledge of entomology into, um, into helping solve real-world problems. And, and how'd you get into bugs? Um, I've just always been fascinated with insects. Rick, where did your passion for problem solving come from? Matt, I was exposed to economics first as a college student, and I had some uh, professors that were really uh, terrific at explaining how economics works. And I uh, became fascinated with how the market mechanism operates and how markets can be used to create social value. I also, through that, became fascinated with how we can use innovative approaches to try to solve policy problems. And that was a long time ago, and I've remained uh, fascinated uh, with it ever since. So do you think there's a market approach for invasive species? I do. I think there, there would be a market approach. One of the things I've learned in economics is that you really have to study your subject matter intensively. Before you suggest a policy solution, you should really become an expert on uh, all the aspects of uh, invasive species. And uh, just like in transportation infrastructure, it's taken me years to kind of learn that whole world of infrastructure delivery. I think the same thing would be true if I were to try to apply policy and economics to invasive species issues. So do you think more scientists should be taking economics courses? Absolutely. (laughs) I I strongly, I think everybody in high school should have to take some solid economics. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Rick Geddes, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for having me. And Lori Spears, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.